Um, now, I have a lot of thank yous to do. The festival is made possible by Arts Council England, and we thank them very much for their support all through the year. But really importantly, we also have sponsorship from two local businesses tonight, the Feathers Hotel and also Ledbury Books and Maps, which is one of those fantastic independent bookshops which has refused to lie down and be beaten by the internet. And tonight, I'm just so excited to welcome Chris Difford, the lyricist and guitarist for Squeeze, which obviously is the band that he founded with a 50p advert in the local newsagents um, and, uh, and, and went on to such, such success. Uh, he's written lyrics since he was in his teens, wrote them for Squeeze, for his solo albums, for Brian Ferry, for Elton John, all sorts of people that you probably know better than I do. And, um, but um, in his memoir, he says that when he was a child, he was brought up not to speak unless he was spoken to. So tonight we need an interview, and we have Jill Abram, who is a poet herself. So anyway, that's enough of me for an evening of conversation and music. Should we give a huge Ledbury welcome to Jill Abram and Chris Difford? So the plan for the evening is um, this. I've been reading this book, some fantastic place, and the other Ledbury bookshop, Three Counties bookshop, is selling the copies at the back. And um, it's such a good read, and, but it's very thick. So um, we haven't got a lot of time, and we've got to leave time for Chris to sing some songs. So I'm going to read little snippets of the book at him and hope that he'll then pick up on the stories and we can't cover everything so we're going to cover a bit of the beginning of Squeeze and writing some of the songs so extract one I formed my first band in 1972 it was called Porky's Falling Spikes and was a mixture of jamming, dope-smoking, one-chord wonders and good intentions. At one point, we had two drummers and I played bass. As I remember, I wore a boiler suit when we played. I thought it would make me look like Pete Townsend. I had the look, just not the style or talent. We did have Nigel, who joined the band and wrote most of the songs. He was a grumpy sod, and everything had to be his way, or he would sulk. Nigel wrote some good songs, and so did I. We swapped ideas and met in the middle. I was just a pothead with some decent poems on lined paper. He played a telecaster and was a real musician. I never liked him. <laughs> True enough. Yeah, I've, I've never seen him since that day. Um, and when I was writing that particular passage in the book, I, I wondered whether he would come out of the woodwork. But uh, so far, he's not, unless he's in the audience tonight. Um, I've not come across him since 1972, but it was a really fabulous sort of uh, experience to be in a band at that age and really not know what at all I was doing. But just having that passion was the most important thing. Yeah, and 
this being a poetry festival, we're going to link it into some poems. You told me earlier that you mm. first wrote poems at about the age of 14. Yeah. Um, and there's a little bit in here that um, about a time when you, when you had a proper job. For a while, I worked as an office clerk for a local solicitor's office. There was a staff of about 20 spread over two offices, uh, one in Tranquil Vale in Blackheath, the other in Charlton. My job was to fetch files from here and there and take them up to London to the law courts. On the train from Blackheath to Charing Cross, I would write poems that I'd started to fall in love with in my notebook and dream of better days ahead. Yeah, I don't know where the poetry fizz came from. I was kind of young. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I just used to spend hours writing poems and... Um, they're in my uh, office at home now, and I'm sort of quite frightened to sort of read them and look at look at them, just as, because they're they're probably rubbish. But um, you know, there's there's great joy in rubbish. But the, the 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 greatest thing about it again is ambition. Is when I witness that young guy, he had ambitions of sorts. He just didn't want to be a normal kind of guy. He just wanted to do something different. So writing poetry for me was an escape and it took me into an imaginative field that no one else could join me in. And that was very important because my parents kind of left me to get on with my own life. And thankfully that they did because that's how I found my imagination. Yeah, lovely. Um, I know somebody who occasionally runs a teen angst slam when people come along and, and read their teenage poems, so if I hear it happening again, I'll drop you a line. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, obviously, the most significant encounter in your life was probably meeting Glenn Tilbrook. Um, and as uh, Joe mentioned, you put in an advert, so I'm just going to read that little section. Blackheath was where I first met Glenn Tilbrook back in April 1973. I put an advert in a shop window for a guitarist to join a band. I had no band. It said I had a pending record deal and a tour lined up. I had neither deal nor tour. The advert cost me 50p. I took the money from my mum's purse. That 50p got me to where I am today, which is some journey. Uh, and then it was... Um, Glenn's girlfriend, Maxine, who rang you up and you went to meet him. I recognised the boy as being that annoying hippie who played mandolin by the zebra crossing in the middle of Blackheath Village. At other times, he would sit in the flower beds playing guitar and looking like he floated rather than walked. So tell us about Glenn. Um, well, it was, a, it was incredible, really. It's just one of those wondrous moments in life where you don't really know what to expect you put an advert in a sweet shop window and I suppose what I was expecting was somebody to to meet to hang out with and form a band and for it to fall apart within six seven weeks you know I never expected it to last 47 years and um, interestingly only one person answered that ad and it was Glenn so when I went to the pub to meet him and Maxine, they were 15 years old at the time. And I remember looking through the sort of glass uh, uh, door of the pub and seeing them outside and thinking, my God, they're very young. And, I'm, you know, I'm sure, 
you know, I'm, I can't figure out how this is going to work, and there are a couple of hippies, and I've just been a skinhead for the last five years, and I don't know whether to punch them or... I wasn't quite sure of my reaction, but I went outside, and there was something really glowing about them. As I say in the book, they were like Joseph and Mary, and I just felt like the donkey. <laughs> But we went, we went back to Mac, Maxine's house and it was the first house that I ever went in that had more than two floors. It had like four different floors and it had like really posh wall, wallpaper and paintings and a library of books. Her father was a theatre critic for the Evening Standard, Felix Barker. And so to walk into this completely different world was extraordinary because I'd been living on a council estate for the, my entire life. So to walk into this really posh house, which now is probably worth about £5 million, pounds, it's a huge house, um, was just like walking through that mirror, you know, going into another land. And so I was very grateful for the friendship that was offered to me, uh, particularly by Maxine, because she was... She was full of love and she kind of wanted to nurture Glenn and myself and make us feel comfortable and make us write songs and just be there. So I was very, very lucky. And it says here, um, Maxine gave me the space to write by letting me stay at her house. So did you actually move in and live there properly? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Anything to get out of a council house. <laughs> no, I mean, I, she, her brother was at Cambridge studying... And uh, so they had a spare room, and um, you know I was spending so much time there that Maxine's mum Anthea said, "Oh, darling, you should just stay here." You know, so I said, "Oh, okay." So <laughs> next morning I moved in, and um, and then I'd write lyrics downstairs, and Glenn would write the music upstairs, and so I had this wonderful romance on the stairs where I would leave lyrics on the stairs he'd come down pick them up and go up and I'd hear him tinkling on the piano or on the gu guitar and, and you know in those days there were no distractions like there are today and if you had an ambition you could work on it and records record collections meant everything about life and I get so sad sometimes now when I see children at home and I sort of think about you know, what are their ambitions and where is the time gone? Because they're constantly glued to a screen of one form or another. And because we didn't have those dis distractions, all we could focus on was music. We made our own entertainment in those days, didn't we, Chris? And it was a joy. It was <laughs> yeah. a real, real joy. And I'm not saying kids are not ha having a great time now, but it's a different time, you know. There's a great line in here about Glenn. He never put the guitar down and would accompany bread being toasted. God, did I write that? That's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I must put that in a song. <laughs> uh, page 62. All right, I'll take note of that. Yeah, yeah no, he was, you know, he, it's interesting. His son, Leon, is about 13 years old now, I think. He's just like Glenn, it's extraordinary. He comes in the dressing room and just constantly plays guitar. Drives me nuts. <laughs> but it's lovely, you know, because he's got that ambition too. Yeah. Well, you said that, you know, you didn't have any distractions. And this, this section says, In the first year of meeting Glenn, we had chalked up no less than 137 songs. 
Take Me, I'm Yours was one of them. We were so happy writing and we seemed to impress each other with each new tune, Golden Days. We wrote songs about distant lands and fanciful tunes about strange places beyond the mind, songs about being 16 and being in love. We sang together and Glenn would teach me the chords. We sang into the night, candles flickering, joints burning, friends sleeping and record decks revolving. If the sun came up while we were still singing, it was normal. Hundreds of songs were born in that period. We were like sponges absorbing all the music we could, from Sparks to Elvis and back, with a bit of Jake Thackeray and Pete Atkin in there for good measure. God, it's so sad hearing that. Yeah. It's so sad because, the, you know, that you can't relive that life. You know, that life is that guy who was in Squeeze, or is in Squeeze, I should say. And so, you know, that's kind of wrapped up and it's in the past and it's a beautiful thing and I'm really respectful of, of what it achieved, you know, that friendship that we had then. Um, and, you know, Maxine played a large role in keeping us together and sheltering us and feeding us and making it all happen really um, and then of course we met Jules well Glenn already knew Jules Holland and so he joined the band and um, that was really when we started to hatch a plan Glenn and Maxine introduced me to Jules Holland who would come around to the house on his motorbike and play the piano I'd never heard of boogie-woogie music before and was mesmerised by his left hand, his ability to plough through so many notes and make it all sound so great. His tasseled leather jacket always seemed strange in the context of our hippy-trippy world, but he wore it well and his motorbike looked brilliant. Jules felt dangerous to me. <laughs> yeah, well, he still is. <laughs> <laughs> but he had uh, ambitions... You know, we all had ambitions, really, to be in a band. And the great thing about Jules is he would write on his school books, draw on his school books like I did, but he would draw, he drew on his school books drawings of a castle, a Rolls Royce, a princess, TV cameras, you know, and all of those dreams for him came true. So he now lives in a castle, he's got many Rolls Royces. He married a princess. He's on the telly, you know. And so I should have paid more attention because all I drew on my school books were pictures of cocks. So <laughs> I should have tried harder, basically. Oh, my. Um, so there's a bit about the early days here. Together we got a set together in a rehearsal room in Greenwich. We played in pubs for beer money and slowly managed to attract a local crowd. Glenn led the band from the start and always knew instinctively how the songs should sound. He draped us in his ideas and moods and we coiled around his playing, his fantastic voice and ability to lead. He was a born leader, something I fought against from the start for no real reason. After all, I could never do it myself. The rehearsal rooms were dark and mysterious down there under the street. Sometimes you could cross paths with Jeff Beck or musicians of a more mature persuasion. David Bowie and Lou Reed had rehearsed there too. It was a cool place to make some noise. Yeah, it was a studio called Underhill, and it was under a hill in Blackheath. And Jeff Beck, indeed, used to rehearse in the next room, and musicians like Jeff and his drummer, you know, they would just, like, rehearse for hours, and, like, you'd go in there on a Friday and they'd still be rehearsing on a Monday. they just keep rehearsing their songs, whereas we would only rehearse when the pub was shut. 
when it was open, we were out of that door <laughs> as, as quick as lightning. So we just sort of really wanted to get on with it. Um, yeah, and David Bowie uh, rehearsed Spiders from Mars down there, and Lou Reed came down to rehearse for a, a show at the Rainbow in in London. So it was a great place to hang out and just to sort of, you know, try and be one of one of the team, as it were. It was good fun. So you, did you did you meet all the other musicians at that time? I know you worked, whoops, you worked with Barry later, but did you meet him down there in those studios? Uh, no, I had my ear at the door listening to the rehearsal, rehearsals, but uh, his tour manager is a friend of mine called Willie Palin, and Willie and I um, got on really, really well. And So I was always just allowed to sort of stand around, but I never really got to chat or anything. That came later? Yeah, I wouldn't have known what to say anyway. I was too timid. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we have a bit about um, you and Glenn writing at, at the start. Glenn was providing more and more amazing music to my lyrics. His arrangements were melodic and beautiful. Together we had carved out a new way of writing and it had become, it had begun to hit a new peak. We ploughed on hoping we would get a record deal full of cash to hold us up while we wrote some more. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the writing... Um never really stopped um, because there was nothing else to do there wasn't any distract distractions apart from when the pub was open as I said so it was something that we just did and you know we wanted to get a record deal and um, eventually a manager came along a guy called Miles Copeland and he saw us rehearsing in under Underhill and um, he came down with his brothers Stuart Copeland who ended up forming the police and uh, his other brother, who was our agent in America. And um, they were quite impressive, the three of them. They were quite big, broad American guys, and we were sort of skinny South London lads. So anybody like that was impressive to us. So they offered us, or Miles offered us a contract, 15 quid a week. Uh, and to us, 15 quid a week was like a really good deal. So. He asked us to show the contract to our parents to make sure that they were cool with us signing it. And, of course, my dad worked in the gasworks. He'd never seen a contract in his life. And he just said, how much are you getting? I said, 15 quid. He said, sign it. <laughs> so I signed it. Consequently, all the songs that Glenn and I wrote up until 1992, we will never own. So it was a sad moment, but... A, uh, in reflection, it was a, it was a sad thing. But actually, if we hadn't have signed it, we wouldn't have be where we are today in some ways. And um, what what did you have to do to earn your fifteen pounds a week? Just being a band. I mean, that was the greatest joy of all, you know. So, you know, we got our rent paid as well. Um, so um, we'd mo I'd moved out of Maxine's house at this point, and we Glenn and I rented a property, a small flat in Blackheath and um, you know we just sort of just were in a band it was wonderful oh, lovely. Um, now the original drummer that you had uh, Paul Gunn yes <coughs> I gather well let's just say the time came when you advertised for a new drummer mm. we put an ad in Melody Maker and auditioned drummers in a rehearsal room beneath the main pool at Greenwich Baths Gilson Lavis, a former session drummer, turned up in his mother's mini with all his drums stacked inside. 
As I helped him unload, I could hear the clink and rattle of empty whiskey bottles as they rolled around the floor. Gilson's drums took up most of the space in our rehearsal room. He played with six toms on racks. It was ridiculous, but it sounded amazing. He got the job. Our songs sounded brilliant with him playing on them. We were complete. We were squeeze. Yeah, that was... Gilson was such an incredible drummer. He'd already auditioned for Wings... Um, he'd uh, played with Chuck Berry he'd toured with Johnny Cash so he was like you know, he knew a thing or two about being in a band and a lot of things that I can't even bring up because they're kind of you can't put things like that in a book but some of the stories that he told were unreal you know, it's like wow that's what drummers are like and uh he brought a lot of authority to the rhythm, particularly of the band, but his imaginative wherewithal on the drums was what really... When I listen to some of those early songs of Squeeze now, Gilson really contributed more than most drummers do in bands. I'd say in the same sort of style, the same kind of way as Keith Moon, you wouldn't have had the Who without Keith Moon. You had the madness on one side, but you had the unique skill of being able to hit all the drums at the same time and make them sound like they're in in time whereas a lot of drummers couldn't do that they sort of pretended and you can tell from from the way you've written about him that he was quite a character as well I and mean, some of you may know i i work in radio and um my colleagues often do sessions with jules holland and i've never heard a story back from them that didn't mention gilson's name yeah well he's he, he was in those days he was um he was all-encompassing and dangerous to be around. Dangerous in a good way, obviously. No. <laughs> in a fun way, in a, in a way that things happened, I think. No, just dangerous. <laughs> I mean, okay. uh, I've, uh, there was a security guy once, it's not in the book, this, a security guy standing outside the backstage door and we came off stage and he couldn't get the door Gilson couldn't get the door open the security guy was on the other side and you know he was saying open the bloody door open the bloody door and anyway the guy opened the door and then Gilson just decked him <laughs> was flat out on the floor it's yeah. like did you need to do that we've got the door <laughs> open now you know <laughs> yeah seems a bit um, after the fact uh, so we're going to skip on to um, writing your second album Cool for Cats. It was recorded in a few months. Glenn put a lot of time into the arrangements and played most of the keyboard parts too, as Jules wasn't always on hand to contribute. He was in the pub with me. It's an inspired album in many ways and I'm very proud of it. I think of it as our first record because it feels like that to me. It's certainly the first of our albums that sounded how we wanted it. Lyrically, I was scooping up things I heard in the pub and writing in a dialect, Cockney from the south bank of the Thames, that's now almost vanished. The songs came quickly, the inspirational tap was on full flow. The music I was hearing on the London pub circuit, Ian Jury, Elvis Costello, Nick Lowe, etc., was making me raise my game. I knew my lyrics had to be of a high standard to compete. That's very true. When... You know, when prog rock was buried and along came Ian Jury and the Ramones and Elvis Costello, the lyrical sort of phrasing of songs suddenly turned upside down. And 
it was a relief in some ways that you go out of this airy fairy neighborhood of lyric writing that although pleasant to listen to wasn't really that challenging and so when Ian and Elvis came along for me that's when I just thought well this is great I want to write like that you know I want to be able to listen to what people say in the pub or on the bus or in the street and try and um, speak the same language and I think we achieved that uh, all together and I haven't seen anything quite like that until just recently and I really had to think it through but um, Stormzy and a rapper called Dave are really the only people recently that have come close to Ian Jury's style of lyric writing I know they're rap rappers and a lot of people find that very difficult to listen to. But if you actually take the words, they're kind of Shakespearean, Dickensian words. What they're doing is they're explaining what it's like to live in a neighbourhood. It's just drilled in a different kind of rhythm. And that's really what Ian did. you know. So um, I'm really pleased that there are younger people coming up through the ranks now that, are being, uh, that can do that stuff. Um, and it's been difficult to switch into listening to that kind of music because it's not something that I really love terribly much. I find it quite some of it quite offense, offensive. But um, when you dig deep, there's plenty of gold there. Mm -mm. Well, that brings us neatly on to... Um, the lyric for Up the Junction was inspired by the BBC Play for Today episodes I used to watch as a teenager. Those kitchen sink dramas written by such greats as Alan Akebourne, Dennis Potter and Mike Lee appealed to me because I could zone out and go into another world. My imagination could be rested for the time they took to weave their story. Like all of my best lyrics, I wrote the song in one sitting and Glenn wrote the music on our day off in a motel room outside New Orleans while we did our washing. <laughs> I know. Isn't that weird? It's weird that a song about London could be written so far away, but we toured constantly in those days and we going back to the 50 the magic 50p the magic 50p <laughs> that would get you on a Freddie Laker plane and fly you to New York in those days and what you had to do was go to Victoria Station and queue up at 4 o'clock in the morning with 50p and you'd get your ticket and the next day you'd be on a plane going to New York that was genius the plane, I mean, the seats were not bol bolted to the plane. <laughs> they were, like, all over the place. It was the scariest ride I've ever had. But, you know, we then got to America and we toured constantly for, like, three months. And we, we eventually got to New Orleans and I was so homesick. I really wanted to be at home and that's how Up the Junction came. I just wanted to remember what it was like to be in London and to be at my mum's house and watch black and white telly and all that stuff you know that was the that's what I was missing I was missing beans on toast but I couldn't get beans on toast into the lyric <laughs> just ate them while you wrote them. Uh, slap and tickle is one of my favorite songs from the album it it gave Glenn and me another opportunity to do our trademark octave apart vocal and the story I put into the lyric was incredibly satisfying for me to write. The song's meter is heavily influenced by Ian Jury. I'd never heard anyone recite a lyric before he did, and it gave me an opportunity to experiment with an entirely different kind of rhyming couplet. Mm. 
Yeah, listening to Ian, I mean, all songwriters are magpies. We're all thieves, basically. We nick from each other. So I'd listen to a bit of Ian's Jury's album and then sit down and write something in a similar vein <coughs> with a similar kind of meter. And that's how I got uh, Slap and Tickle written. And, you know, it's quite South London. It's got South London mannerisms about it. It's kind of odd. It's almost like it was written by a different person. It was written by that guy who lived in South London and went to local pubs and hung out with all these villains. You know, and um, I met some very dodgy monkeys in those days. You know, people that ran pubs um, and, and did things that uh, would... Um, would go down in history books as being violent crimes but they're really nice people <laughs> <laughs> and they bought me loads of drinks and um, you know there was one guy who ran a pub in Deptford and he surprised me one night and he said would you like to go and see Frank Sinatra play at the Albert Hall and the idea of this sort of murderer <laughs> Offering me a ticket to Frank Sinatra was the most bizarre thing, and I thought, yeah, I'd love that, you know. So he picked me up in his Rolls Royce, and he had Beethoven playing in his car, and I'm sure it probably came with the car, and he didn't know how to turn it off. <laughs> and we drove all the way to the Albert 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 Hall with his girlfriend, and we sat and watched Frank Sinatra. It was brilliant. And on the way back, I asked him what he did, and um, you know how how he came to be who he is, and he was very clever. He d he realised that uh, petrol stations only sold petrol, and he thought, "Wow, you know, people are just hanging out, filling up their cars. They're not actually buying anything. You know, they they're just wasting time." So he went to one petrol station in the East End of London, and he dropped off two bags of spuds, potato, potatoes, two big sacks. And by midway through the day, they'd realised that people had just bought all the, all the spuds. So he went, right, let's have a shop. So he was the first person to do, do that. And he went to meet the heads of Shell or BP. And he took them all out for a Chinese meal and convinced them to put the shop in. And now everywhere we go, every petrol station, you can buy any kind of shit that you want. And it's because of this villain in the South London. <laughs> <laughs> he made fortunes out of it. Wow. Plus, he got the, girl, the, the guy from... I shouldn't be telling this, but I'm going to tell oh, it. Oh, go on. Because it's funny. You're amongst friends. He, uh, he took this guy from Shell or BP to a Chinese restaurant, and then he invited some women of the night into the restaurant... And uh, they they went to a hotel after the Chinese. They were all drunk, and and something happened. And then somebody jumped out of a out of the behind the curtains with a camera, and took pictures of this uh, innocent guy from Shell. And uh, basically, the contract was signed. He <laughs> was a lovely bloke. <laughs> Yeah, they say the Crays were lovely blokes. Mm. They were. <laughs> Did you ever meet them? No, but a very good friend of mine was one of their minders. His name's Gordon. He's in the book. 
and uh, Gordon, uh, Gordon's got a lot of memorabilia of theirs that they left him. And one of, the, one of the jobs he used to have was to go to visit them in prison. And uh, he used to play tricks on them, like taking holiday magazines in for them. To <laughs> Look what you could have won, you know. <laughs> That's mean. So the, talk about the title track of the album. Uh, the original melody of Call for Cats was much more laid back, and the lyric wasn't anywhere near as good. But Glenn felt the song had legs and asked me to have another crack at the words. So I took the backing track back to my flat on Crooms Hill and listened to it over and over, trying in vain to come up with something that would work. Nothing happened until I took a break for some Welsh rarebit and a cup of Earl Grey with a bit of Benny Hill on the telly. Watching him perform his comic songs, I was struck by the metre of the verses, the quick-fire lyrics and the vivid images and decided to try something along the same lines. The words then came quickly, each verse a vignette about the various TV shows that followed, Wagon Train, The Sweeney, Minder and A Bit of Grease. At the studio the following day, I read the lyric to Glenn and John Wood and a consensus quickly developed that I should be the one to sing it. I did it in one take. We employed the services of our girlfriends to sing the backing vocals and the job was done. Exactly. What, what, what a wonderful thing. Um, and that song has become like a limb that's grown out of my body because I can't go anywhere without performing it. And there was a part, there was a time in the 19, late 80s, early 90s when it used to drive me up the bloody wall doing it all the time and I hated it. <coughs> but now it's just become like a really nice pair of underpants. <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is. It's the song that I wrote. You know, when I sing it, I'm the guy who sang it. You know, so I'm very was lucky. That, was that the first song that you'd sung with Squeeze? No, I sang some... Uh, I sang on the first album, um, but not to any great degree. I mean, they were kind of weird songs. <laughs> so then the next album... Argy Bargy, described as part two of the Cool for Cats album. Mm. Uh, the record company seemed happy enough with the two hits to come from it, Another Nail in My Heart and If I Didn't Love You, though I've never felt attached to the former. Like a lot of lyrics on that album, it was written quickly and has its roots in the constant flow of verses and choruses I was forced to produce, rather than in me unearthing any deep emotional thoughts. It's a bit unfair of me to say that, <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. So it's almost time to hear, hear those lyrics put into practice. But before we do, what are you writing now? Um, well, it's finding the time to stand still to write. It's quite, you know, if I won the lot lottery, I would stop and write. There is just not enough time to, to do that anymore. Um, <coughs> I try and put January and February aside every year. They're my nesting months, and for three weeks of those in that period, period I sort of form a nest in my office, and I write, and I just wait for the lyrics to come to me, because when I often, if I go after them, they're they're really hard to find, so it's kind of that's what I do. Um, I'm planning on a poetry book next year. So hopefully I'll be back here to read some of them. Um, and I'm, I'm working on a, uh, an idea for a stage play with music. 
and I'm really excited about that because it's squeeze is great it's one thing it is terrific to be in that squeeze and to have that energy and that sort of thing that we do but it's also good to push yourself so. and I'm just interested that you describe it as a stage play with music not a musical well no a musical is all sort of big faces and <laughs> you know and people running around and, and being gay and stuff and I don't think I can do... I'd love to do that. You know, a friend of mine just did it, Dan, from the feel, feeling his musical in the West End has been extended for another six months. There's a film being made of it. Um, uh, everybody's talking about Jamie. I recommend it. It's one of the best musicals I've seen. It's just genius. Uh, but so this would be more of like a play. Uh, I went to say, see mood music recently at the Old Vic. It was very inspiring to see it. I only had six actors... And although it was about music, it had hardly any music in it. And also, uh, Girl from the North Country, which is a musical, uh, it's a play based around Bob Dylan's songs, and I can highly recommend that if it's still on. Because it doesn't kind of, it's not like the ABBA musical, it doesn't sort of shoehorn the song in. It kind of is just part of the script, and it's just such a beautiful thing. Yeah, I can second that. Um, it's tra it transferred to the West End, but I'm not sure if it's still on. But right. that was it was amazing. I hated Mamma Mia. The shoe, the songs really were shoehorned in. But you'll hate it even more if Sweden beat England at the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Girl from North Country is is wonderful, and the arrangements were great. They were. Time for some songs. Okay. Please, Chris. Uh, some fantastic place, my life in and out of squeeze, available at the back of the room, and um, we can't. There isn't enough light for us to see the clock from here, so uh, we'll guess at how long it is. But if any of you need to leave to get trains, just sneak out quietly. Minutes, so, <laughs> so um, when Glenn and I first met, we as it says in the book about writing loads of songs. Um, one of the first festivals we ever played <clears throat> was a free festival in Windsor Great Park. And it was basically 300 hippies in a field with, in their underpants, stoned uh, as rats, and surrounded by about 4,000 policemen who thought a revolution was about to take place. But in actual fact, we were all too stoned for that. But anyway, they were all outside the, the perimeter fence, and there were all sorts of things going on. Um, and uh, the, the guy who was promoting it um, said, would we like to play? And we said, yeah, that'd be amazing. And so he said, well, you can go on after Hare Krishna. And so that was kind of a daunting prospect because they played for two hours. Chant, chanting and stuff and it was kind of a bit of a build up really for us to go on and then we went on and then after us Hawkwind played for like five hours so we went and sat in the woods and we wrote some songs and one of those songs we still play today Across the desert to greet you with a smile My camel looks so tired it's hardly worth my while I tell you my travels across the golden east I see your preparations Invite me first to feed 
yours. Take me, I'm yours. Because dreams are made of this. Forever there'll be a heaven in your kiss. Musing belly dancers distract me from my wine. Across the bed and mountains and memories of mine. I stood some ghostly moments with natives in the hills. Recorded here on paper. My chills and thrills and spin. Take me, I'm yours. Because dreams are made of this. Forever there be a heaven. In your kiss It's really been some welcome You never seem to change A great to tempt you As your romantic just is strange My ego finds tomorrow It's a game I treasure dear To seek the helpless future My love at last I'm here Take me, I'm yours Because dreams I'm made of this Forever there be a heaven in your kiss Take me, I'm yours Because dreams are made of this Forever there be a heaven in your kiss One of our ambitions as a young band was, uh, well, there were many, but one of them was to do uh, a play Top of the Pops. And Top of the Pops was a big thing growing up for us in those days. Um, I wasn't really allowed to watch most of it because my mum found Legs and Co. a little bit too risque <laughs> and advised me not to look at the TV when they were dancing. And let's face it, they could dance to anything. They could dance to Gilbert O'Sullivan or... Cliff Richard of all the, you know, just sweet. Anything that was on they could dance to. It was kind of weird. So when we did get to do Top of the Pops, me and Jules made a beeline for their dressing room to try and chat them up. Unfortunately, they weren't interested in me and Jules. They were only interested in David Van Day. <laughs> Top of the Pops, was it was a really wonderful thing. I was... It was kind of like an institution, you know, with the, the bands that would perform and be in the dressing rooms, the DJs, you know, we all know about them. And they were sort of like kings and queens of, of uh, the backstage bar, if you like. They were kind of like everything revolved around these weird people that had very little talent. And all the talent had no say in it. So you kind of had to just... Uh, be on demand for them really it was kind of bizarre but um, this is a song that we did on top of the pop several times and uh, my mum and dad felt very proud of me on telly when they saw me do this song with Glenn and Squeeze and suddenly I was their favourite son
I never thought it would happen with me and a girl from Clapton out on a windy common. That ain't forgotten. When she turned out the ration, the summer of the passion, I said, You are a lady. Perhaps you said, I may be. We moved into a basement with thoughts of our engagement. We stayed in by the telly, although the room was smelly. We spent our time just kissing the railway arms and missing. Love had got us hooked up, all our time it took up. I got a job with Stanley, he said I'd come in handy and started me on Monday. So I had a bath on Sunday. I worked eleven hours and bought the girl some flowers. She said she'd seen a doctor. Nothing that could stop her. I worked on through the winter, the weather brass and bitter. I put away a tenner, a trick to make it better. And when the time was ready, we had to sell the telly. Lady in his by the fire with little kicks inside her. Morning at 4:50, I took a rather nifty and to an incubator. But 30 minutes later, she gave birth to a daughter within a year and walker who looked just like a mother. If there could be another, and now she's two years older. My mother's with a soldier. She let me wear my drinking. Came a proper stinging. The devil came and took me from by the streets of Oki. No more nights by the telly. No more nights napping, smelling. Alone here in the kitchen, I feel there's something missing. I beg for some forgiveness. Begging's not my business. She won't write a letter, although I always tell her. So it's my assumption I'm really up the junction. So we've got time for one more, and this one's uh, the Benny Hill one. Uh, <laughs> it's the one that paid for my first divorce. So I'm quite proud of it, really. <laughs> you know that that whole period of writing those songs and recording them, and it just it just happened so quickly. It's un unreal how quick that whole thing happened from being in a rehearsal room one minute to being on top of the pops the next. It was just glorious. <laughs> It's a shame there is no Top of the Pops anymore, but we have X Factor, so yeah. <laughs> we've got something to aspire to as we go to our graves. <laughs> the Indian sensic knows from the rocks above the past. The cowboys take position in the bushes and the grass. Score is with the couple, she is tied against a tree. She doesn't mind her language, it's a beating she don't need. She lets us all the horses when the couple is asleep. And he waits to find a fire stead and arrows in his hat. Davy Crockett burns around, says it's cool for cats, it's cool for cats. 
The scene is doing nightly because they got the word to go To get a gang of villains in a shadow but he throws They're counting out the fibers when the handcuffs look again They're in and out of once with the numbers on their name Funny and this is always possibly the same Don't worry. Chase a little up in posing down the pub. I see my reflection, I'm being slightly rough. I fancy this, I fancy that, I wanna be so flash. Give a little muscle, spend a little cash. All I get is bitter and a nasty little rash. By the time I'm sober, I've forgotten what I've had. And everybody tells me it's gonna be a cat. Rocking the Ledbury scene here. It'd be a revolution here in a minute. Shape up at the disco and I think I've got a ball. I ask her lots of questions as she hangs onto the wall. I kiss her for the first time and then I take her home. Then fire in for coffee and I'll give the dog a bone. She says she likes the disco so she's always on her own. I said I'll see you later. Thank you very much. Thank you. No, that's fine. Thank you.